The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church and Pastor Greg Davis in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about Cashin FBC, please visit CashinFBC.org. You may be seated. I hope at the end of the service that song's going to have new meaning to you as we study God's Word together, as we talk about prioritizing Christ in the church. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Revelation chapter 2? Last book of the Bible, I can help you out. If you know where Genesis is and you know where Revelation, first book and last book, we're dismissing our children's church to go with the workers, and we thank the workers so much for their time and effort helping us in the children's program. Revelation chapter 2, as you're turning there, I am aware that when you hear the book of Revelation, that you probably think future tense. Uh, So many people preach and teach the book of Revelation all about the future, and that's certainly true. The Bible does talk about the future. It does talk about uh, the subject, if we were to put it into a theological category of eschatology, and that's how things end. That's how all things end. And this book is about that. But I want to invite you to look at your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and notice something that it says here in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So there's both aspects, that there's a here and now aspect, and there's a future tense to the book of Revelation. So this book has much to say to us today about what we are to be doing as a church. We can learn about the future but we can also learn about things right now that are important to us today. So chapter 2, if you have your Bible, going from verse 1 through verse 7, then we'll pray together as we always do. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent." Do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And I'm going to read from chapter 1 and verse 3, and just make that into a prayer. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Father God, may these things be true of us, that we would read the Word of God, that we would also hear it, and that we would heed what is in it. God, I pray for those eyes that see, those ears that hear, and those hearts that are quick to obey, and we know those are all gifts from your hand, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Many of you may not know this, but many, many moons ago, I was a collection manager for Rent-A-Center. Now, if you don't know what Rent-A-Center is, it is a rent-to-own store. And you can rent anything in Rent-A-Center. You can rent uh, beds, which, by the way, don't rent a bed. I'm just going to tell you that. I, I, I've picked up many beds that you don't want to rent back out. Uh, beds and computers and televisions and washers and dryers, and everything that is in Rent-A-Center, you can rent it. And if you'll pay long enough in these exorbitant prices, you can eventually own those things. Well, as a collection manager, here's what my job was. I was to go to people's houses, and if they were behind on their payments, I would have them pay me, and if they didn't pay me, I had to unfortunately repossess what they had. Now, that led to some uncomfortable situations to the point where my mother said, why don't you carry a gun, right? You're, you're going into these places, and they don't want you to take their stuff back. And I had people yell and scream in my ears and everything else, but here's the reality. That was my job. Now, what happened when I was caught up as a collection manager is I had to go back to the store and work the showroom floor just like any salesman would do. And if someone came in, I would talk to them about renting things out and how long it took to rent those things. But one other job that every person had in Rent-A-Center was to answer the phones and to respond to questions that were asked. Well, here's the catch. When you answered the phone at Rent-A-Center, you had a pre-programmed script in your mind that you were to give back to the people, and you had to follow this to the letter. I mean, there was no spirit of the law and letter of the law. It was all the letter of the law that you had to read back to these people. You had to make it sound personal, but you know what I mean. There's a script that you were to follow. Well, one time I answered the phone, and I didn't follow the script, and unfortunately, I found out on the other end of the phone was a secret shopper. And they were recording this entire interaction. Now, here's what happened. I got reported to corporate headquarters. They pulled me out of the store, and they reprimanded me, and they made me go to a two-day training in a little conference room. And here's one of the things they did to punish me. They kept playing the phone call back on the loudspeaker. And I had to listen to how horrible I was and how bad I butchered it. And then they would play it back and they'd say, now here's the script and hear what you said, okay? And everybody got a good laugh out of it, including myself. Now, I want to say something to you this morning. It is a sobering thought when anybody, a scary thought too, it's a scary thought when anybody is critiquing your work. And some of you may have secret shoppers at work. Some of you may have people who do uh, year-end reports. But it's always kind of a, a sobering thought to think, someone's looking at what I'm doing, and they're critiquing it. They're saying, this is what you did right, this is what you did wrong. Well, let me tell you something about Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is doing that very thing with seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven real churches that historically existed. And as a matter of fact, I'd invite you to take out the back of your Bible when you're leaving here and look up those seven churches because they actually come kind of in a horseshoe shape going from south to north, uh, starting with Ephesus and moving up just in the order they are in your Bible. And Jesus is writing letters to them, critiquing the church. He's doing this through the apostle John, but he's saying, these are the strengths and these are the weaknesses. And I want to tell you the pattern that he follows in every single one of these letters. 
he has a, a message to the church, and then there's a description of Christ, and then there is a compliment to the church. This is what you're doing right. You'll see it here in just a moment for the church at Ephesus. And then there's a criticism. And, and let me tell you what the criticism is always going to follow. Something like this. I have this against you. Just like Renna Center pulled me out, made me go to the conference room and say, hey, you're doing a good job, but this is what you need to work on. There's the criticism, and then there is what we will call a correction at the end of this. I have this against you, and here's what you need to do to fix it. Now, I want to fill you in. There's seven of these churches that Jesus writes to, follows this pattern for the most part, but there's a few churches that he deviates with this. Smyrna, in all of the churches, gets no critique. It seems that there's nothing wrong in the church of Smyrna. Jesus just says there to Smyrna, he says, you're going to have a rough time coming up. Hold on, I'm still with you, okay? You're going to get thrown into prison and you're going to suffer, but, but this is going to be a very short period of time. But he praises them for the most part. Sardis and Laodicea, here's the difference. He has no praise for them. There's no compliment for either one of those churches. And, and we never want to be the church that Jesus can't find anything good in. But the goal today, here's what the goal is, is just to work through this first church, which we'll call the church in Ephesus. Now, you're, you're going to get a little summary here, okay? Here's the essence of what is going on in Ephesus. They have become a loveless congregation. Now, I want to stop right here for just a moment and say something to you. That is not a title that any of us ever want applied to us. And it is certainly not a title that we want applied to our church family, that we are a loveless congregation or loveless church members or loveless individual Christians. We do not want that. But that's exactly what Jesus tells them through the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John's pen, is that they are a loveless congregation. Now, would you look with me at verse one, and we're going to see exactly what I just told you the church in verse one. Notice it says, to the angel of the church. There it is right there. And this means this is not written to an individual, it is written to a collective body of churches. And it is the church, notice, in Ephesus. In Ephesus. That's a city in Asia Minor. And I want to tell you something about Ephesus. It was, according to historians, the most important city in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, if you look at Asia Minor in this time, we're probably talking north of 250,000 people, maybe even up to a half million people when this letter is being written to them. It was an important area in Asia Minor. And let me tell you why. It possessed one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, this is a, uh, called the Temple of Di Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And, and here's what I'm going to say. And I, we've got most of our children out of here, so I feel comfortable saying this. Basically what it was, okay, are you ready? Tender ears, hear this. Uh, maybe you plug your kids' ears. It, it was basically a, a sex temple where people would come and, and experience these things in this, this temple dedicated to this 
goddess named Diana, the goddess named Artemis. You hear about it, if you want to read about it in your own time, go to Acts chapter 19 and read about it there. But this was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. And so you can imagine in that city, there's a lot of traffic in and a lot of traffic out, people coming and going constantly. And like I said, could be north of 250,000 all the way up to maybe 500,000 people in this very, what we would call pagan city. Now, I said this to the first service, and I feel comfortable saying it to you as well. How many of you always believe you're living in the hardest times or the worst times that the world's ever seen? How many of us have ever said that, right? At least two of us have. Uh, Three of us have said that. All of us always say, we've never seen it this bad. Well, let me assure you of something. In Ephesus, it was that bad. And yet God, as he always does, had called a church together in that very pagan city and put a congregation together that loved the Lord and loved one another. And Paul invested in this church. If you don't know anything about your Bible, go to Ephesians and read it a letter written probably 30 or 40 years before about the gathering of that church in Ephesus. And Paul stayed there ministering to them for almost three years. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Jesus wrote this letter or dictated this letter to John, and then John takes the letter to the church. But I want you to actually notice to whom the letter is actually written. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, in your mind, an angel is someone in a white robe with wings and a halo, and they fly around and they protect us. And that could be the case, right? Some commentators even take that position. But here's what I want you to know about that word angel. If you translate it from the Greek language into the English language, Angelos is just angel, but here's the meaning behind the word. It's a messenger. And here's the messenger that I think that John is actually writing to is simply the pastor of the church. Because all seven churches have an angel that's being written to. You can look at verse 12 and verse 18, and then you can look at verse uh, 8. You can go through chapter 2 and then chapter 3. Every single church has an angel that John writes to. But this is why I find this interesting, and it's a good lesson for us today as a church. Jesus dictates the letter. John takes it, gives it to the pastor, and here's what the pastor does. Guess what he does? He just reads the letter. (laughs) He just says, this is what Jesus says. And isn't that our job today as Christians, we're not compromising the book. We're not changing it. We're not rearranging it. We're just simply saying, guys, this is what Jesus says, and this is what we do with it. No matter how hard or how easy it is to read, we just simply take that and pass it along. So that's the church. Now we get this description in verse 1 of Christ. The one, here's the description of Christ, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. This is description of Christ. So it is Jesus who holds these seven stars in his right hand. It is Jesus who walks among the golden lampstands. And it is Jesus ultimately who writes this letter to the church. But I want to stop right here for just a moment and alert you to something that you struggle with. 
how many of you have ever started your Bible reading plan and got to Leviticus and stopped? Okay, most of us, if we're, if we're willing to admit, say, I got to Leviticus, there's all those weird laws, and I stopped. And then some people will read Revelation, and they'll say, man, I started reading, and I didn't understand any of it, because there's all these symbols and everything going on, and I simply didn't understand what was being said. And so we look at lampstands, and we look at stars, and we see Jesus holding them in his right hand and walking among them, and we say, here's all that symbolism that I'm talking about. But I want to give you a great lesson in studying your Bible. If you'll read what comes before and what comes after, many times the answer's actually in the text of Scripture. So would you look back in your copy of God's Word? The, the words aren't going to be on the screen, so you need to have it handy in your, in your hand here. Look at chapter 1 and verse 20. Notice it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars. Remember, we're looking to say, what do the seven stars represent? Uh, to the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Here's the explanation as to what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So hear me this morning. Jesus according to this text of Scripture, using symbolism, is holding the messengers of those churches in his hands, the seven real churches. He's holding the, uh, the leadership of that church in his hand. And you say, what does it mean that he's holding them in his hand, in his right hand? Here's what it means. Jesus has power and authority over the entire church. And he certainly has power and authority over even the leadership of the church. And this is why that's so important when we think about Jesus Christ and his place in the church, is that we tend to, if we're not careful, we tend to put the leadership up on some kind of pedestal as if they're the objects of worship. But the reality is that Jesus is saying, even as important as the leaders have been in Ephesus, men like Timothy and Paul and others that came through there, Jesus Christ is superior to them. He's the object of our worship. We are to put our loyalties first and foremost to him. But notice also that Jesus, it says, is walking among the seven lampstands. And the lampstands, it says, are the churches. This indicates something also very important, that when we gather as a church body, guess who's present with us? Jesus Christ himself. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something. If we understand that, it changes the way we worship. That worship is not a performance for those around us, but worship is directed to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. And so we have that description of Christ in verse 1. Now, what is the compliment that the powerful and authoritative Jesus Christ who walks among these churches, what is the compliment he's going to pay them in verse 2? Well, look down at verse 2, and we're going to see it. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. <clears throat> pay close attention to the first two words of this passage. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, you might even want to circle them, highlight them, underline them in your Bible. Those two words, I know. I know. Jesus has 
intimate knowledge of this church. And I'm not talking about this church, although he does, but I'm talking about the church in Ephesus. And why does that matter? Because it tells us that Jesus is omniscient and that he knows all things. And I'll tell you this, this is a good thing and a comforting thing, that Jesus knows everything about every church and every individual believer in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how comforting it is. In your own time, go home and read Psalm 139. And it'll tell you there how much comfort you can derive from the fact that God knows all things about you. And here's why this is comforting and good. Because if nobody else knows or nobody else ever recognizes, Jesus does. Jesus saw the church, knew their labor, knew their toil, and it mattered to him. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you go all the way to the end of the chapter, it says your laboring on Christ's behalf is never in vain. And why is it? You say, well, nobody ever recognizes me. Nobody ever says anything to me. Nobody ever says good job or, or well done or pats me on the back. And, and you say, but listen to me. Jesus knows what you're doing. And Jesus loves it. So that's a comforting thought. But I want to tell you another thing. It's a scary thought. It's a terrifying thought. Because you see, in the same letter, series of letters, he tells another church that you have a lively reputation. When people in the community see this church, they think you're a church vibrant and loving and, and, and alive with uh, the Spirit of Christ. But here's what Christ says, but I know that you're dead. It's a terrifying thought. And friends, I want you to hear me this morning. He sees through any facade that you're putting on. There's no fooling Christ. Uh, you may be able to fool your family, your friends, but you're uh, not able to fool Christ. Christ knows all things. Now, there's a list of positive things that he knows about this church in verse 2. If you want to underline them, deeds, toil, and perseverance. That's the first three things that Jesus Christ knows about this church. He knows their deeds and their toil and their perseverance. This idea of deeds and toil, I think these are synonyms for this reason. This is what it is. They are a church laboring to the point of physical and spiritual exhaustion. I don't think they're working for their salvation. He's not talking about your, your deeds and your toil working for your salvation the way the Catholic monk uh, Martin Luther did, right? He, he worked himself sick doing that. These are people laboring uh, because the Christian life is hard. The Christian life never stops. We're always people working for the kingdom of God, and they're doing that. They're laboring and toiling, but they're also persevering. And I want you to see what they're persevering in, not just life in general and just enduring life in general, but they're persevering in the very things that he just complimented them on. Things about the kingdom of God. Would you look down at verse 3? Because he repeats this. He says, you have perseverance and you have endured. Here's what they're enduring in. For my name's sake. They're working and persevering for Jesus. And brothers and sisters, all God's people can say amen, right? That's what we want in the church. People laboring and working and striving and enduring and persevering for Jesus. Now, Jesus also compliments in this church what I call their holy discernment. 
Look back at verse 2. He says, not only do they persevere, but you cannot tolerate evil men. Right? They don't want to put up with sin. They don't want to put up with, with, with people who are just all about the opposite things that God wants. They, they don't tolerate that. And not only do they not tolerate it, but they can discern when someone's that way. Do you see there? He says, you've put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They are a church that weighs everything in light of Scripture. They know what's true, and they know what's false. Do you know what John also wrote to uh, this little congregation in the letter of 1 John? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. They're, they're doing something here that is very biblical. They're testing all things in light of God's truth. And we ought to do the same thing. And you'll notice if you go down to, to verse 15, uh, this idea of the Nicolaitans, right? That, that people are constantly talking about them. God, Jesus is constantly talking about them in this letter. We don't really know that much about them, okay? We know that they're a group that existed in the time of Jesus. There's one or two early church fathers, and this is what they said about them. They believed in unrestrained lives of indulgence. They're people that just say anything goes when it comes to, to sin and, and indulgence. They just say there's, there's no breaks on anything. And he says, you hate their deeds, and I hate their deeds as well. So this is a church not only that works hard and perseveres, but they have discernments. These are all good things. And these should be modeled in every Christian member, in every church member. And I'm going to be honest with you, a pastor longs for these kind of people. You're going to turn down hardworking people in your church? You're going to turn down people who say, man, it's all about the kingdom? Or are you going to turn down people who say, hey, I've got discernment. I'm not picking up every book at Mardell's and reading it just because it's on the bestseller list. I'm putting a little bit of thought into what I read. But Jesus doesn't stop there with that compliment. Jesus has a critique in verse 4. And let's not miss it. Would you look down at your copy of God's Word Notice the critique starts with but. But I have this against you. There is a power-packed statement that Jesus is about to make, and every person here, if you are here and you are completely awake and listening, listen to what he's about to say. I have this against you, and what is it? That you have left your first love. Here's a good question. What is their first love? Well, I can tell you what Paul wrote to them probably 30 years earlier. You love the Lord and you love the people of God well. And one of those, if not both of those, was their first love above all other things. Jesus himself was their first love. And so what does it mean that they have left their first love? Do you see that there in verse 4? He says, you have left your first love. In the Bible, sometimes there are people who leave the faith, they leave Jesus, and they prove they never knew Jesus. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. There's a man in the New Testament named Demas. Uh, 
And Demas abandoned Paul. He abandoned Christ because he said, Demas loved this present world more than he loved God. That's an example of someone who proves they never really knew God. And then there's another example of this in the New Testament uh, where John says they went out from us and they never came back because they were never of us. We call this in the New Testament and we call this in theology, we call this apostasy. And sometimes you can leave Jesus in such a definitive way that you prove you never knew Jesus in the first place. At least that's what Baptists say, okay? (laughs) Is that if you leave and don't come back, you never knew Christ in the first place. When Jesus says here that you've left your first love, here's what I think is going on. Jesus is telling them and indicating them that they've been neglecting their relationship with Jesus Christ. You look that word up in the original language, one of the definitions, and I think it's the best definition, neglect. Hey, you're, you're working hard you're laboring, you're persevering, you're discerning, and yet you're neglecting the most important thing. And what is it? Your relationship with Jesus Christ. In all their busyness, in all their love for truth, and all of their discernment, their love for Jesus has grown cold. Now, can I give you a biblical example of this? And I want you to jot it down, go back and read it in your own time, because it's so convicting. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Let me tell you a little story. Two sisters that know Jesus and love Jesus a whole lot. (laughs) Their names are Mary and Martha. Jesus walks into the room. Both of them love Jesus. When Jesus walks in, Mary sees an opportunity that this is the most important thing there is. And she just plops down in front of Jesus and it says she starts listening to his words. And Martha, do you know what she does? Martha's running around the house and she's serving and she's toiling and she's laboring and she's doing things for the sake of Christ. And yet Jesus tells her in that text of Scripture that you've missed the point. Because she comes back and wants to rebuke her sister Mary. And this is what Jesus said, Martha, there's one thing that really matters. And Mary's taking hold of it. And it's that one thing, that that time with Jesus Christ, that relationship with Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away from you. And, And Mary nailed it. And Martha, you've missed it. Did he love Martha? Absolutely. Was Martha considered to be a believer? Absolutely but she missed the main point that it's all about loving Jesus. The busyness is important. The toil is important. The deeds are important. But Jesus is our priority. Now, I want to stop and ask you a question this morning. Can you get to a place of 100% honesty for just one moment? You don't have to answer me out loud. Is Christ your life right now? Is your Christian life right now about Jesus Christ and your love for him? Or is it being neglected? I'm not asking if you're busy. I'm not asking this morning if you're moral. I'm not asking if you're discerning. I'm asking, do you love Jesus Christ? How many times do we see marriages where we're busy and we're 
and, and we're doing good things for one another, but we're neglecting the relationship. Jesus says, you've abandoned. You've walked away. You've neglected your first love. And so in verse 5, he offers correction. How do we fix this problem? I want to ask a question this morning. How many of you love action steps? You're a nerd and you're a list keeper. How many of you love action steps? Okay, we've got some here that love to write things down and they love to say, give me a list of to-dos and I'm going to write those down. Jesus actually in this text of scripture gives you three action steps you need to take if you've neglected your relationship with him. And I want to give them to you and then we're going to take them right out of the text of scripture, okay? Here's the three action steps we can take. Remember, repent, and return. That's exactly what Jesus says. I'm I'm taking it right out of his writing. Notice the first action step. Therefore, remember. Remember. And this means to call to mind. To call to mind. And what are they calling to mind? You'll notice it here in the text, from where you have fallen. That's what they're calling to mind. Uh, look back and remember what you had with Christ. That's the first thing that you need to do. Now, this is the only time that Pastor Greg is going to give you permission to think about the good old days, right? There's times in Scripture where the Bible simply says, don't look back, don't dwell on the past. But Jesus says there's times when our love has grown cold that we need to remember what we had in the beginning. If you're in a relationship with Christ, you go, let me remember what it felt like to first be saved and walk with him. And how many of us could say, man, it was, it was good. I was on my knees praying every morning and I was trying to lead people to Christ and I just love Jesus and want to spend time with him. Remember that. Call that to mind. I'm going to give you an example of this from the story of the prodigal son. It has a relationship, loving relationship with his father and that gets severed. It grows cold. It's neglected. And he goes off into a distant country, and he just blows it. I mean, he's getting prostitutes, and he's blowing his money on, you know, buying his friends drinks at the bar and everything else. and just blows all of his money, and he ends up in the lowest place he can possibly end up in. And here's what happens. It said he comes to his senses, and he remembers how good things were at home. And this is one of the things he remembers. Man, even the slaves and the servants there had it good. (laughs) And do you know what it caused when he remembered? He wanted to return. He wanted to go back. You and I need to remember how good things were when we first started walking with Christ. Then he says to repent. Did you notice it there in verse 5? Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. Some of you remember the guy who would stand on I-240. I don't know if you ever drove out there. He had a van and it had repent written on the side. And then he had signs that said repent. But he never defined what repentance meant. Here's what repent means. Change your mind. Change your mind. Right? You've blown it. You've grown cold. You've neglected it. Now change your mind about this. And a change of mind, here's what it leads to. A change of action. We do a 180. We go the opposite direction of where we're going. That's what repentance is. But then there's something else here, and that's return. Look at verse 5. He says, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. In other words, 
Return back to what you were doing in the first place when you fell in love with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, remembering is so important. Repenting is essential, but returning is the key. We return back to what we had before in Christ Jesus, which is simply go back and love Jesus. Guys, I want to tell you this. I see this all the time as we're overcomplicating things in the church. What is a Christian relationship with Christ about? Love Jesus. He's given us a new heart and a new spirit, and he's put his Holy Spirit within us so that we can do that very thing that we were incapable of before Christ. Go back and love Jesus. Now, I want you to see the warning here, okay? I want you to see the warning at the end of verse 5. Or else. I know we don't like these words. <laughs> They're harsh, coming from the lips of a loving Savior. But Jesus says, you don't do this. There are consequences. And what are the consequences? I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Do you remember just a moment ago we looked at what the lampstand is? It's a church. Jesus says, you don't fall in love with me, there is no church. A church without love for Christ is not a church. A church without love for its brothers and sisters in Christ is not a church. And I want to say this, and I think this is what the scary part of this is. I think we could be full and there not be a church here. You ever think about that? There are people, there are churches that close all the time. Baptists, every year at the Southern Baptist Convention, they put out a report on how many churches close every year. And for numerous reasons. The neighborhoods change and you're not able to reach the culture. People age out. I mean, you got one or two families left and they die. And, and then all of a sudden the church has to close its door. And somebody comes in and buys the church, turns it into something else. But I want to tell you something. We don't want Jesus to shut it down because there's no love for him. I mean, there's a lot of things to shut a church down, but we don't want that to be the reason that Jesus Christ is no longer loved in the church or by the people or by the members. I want to tell you just something very practical for just one moment. John 15, 5. It's a verse that every person, if you've not memorized it, you've been in this church for a long time, you hear me quote it all the time from this pulpit. John 15, 5, that's the whole story about the, the, uh, the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, the Father's the vine dresser, he cleans things up. And he says, here's what your job is as a branch, is abide in me. Just stay close to Jesus. And, and here's what Jesus promises, if we do that, everything flows out of that. So do we need to do good works? And, and work and toil and labor and discern, yes. But we want first and foremost that to flow out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But in John 15, 5, this is what he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Get that through your head. You can do nothing apart from Christ. Cling to him every single day. So I want to tell you something, and I've been talking to my brother about this because my brother here, uh, Jonathan, uh, we call him, I believe, 2nd John. Are you 2nd John or 3rd John? 1st John, 2nd John, then we have 3rd John and 4th John in this church. We've got a lot of, of guys that fit that category. But, but John's just kind of had this awakening, right, of, 
of this love for Christ that's come alive in him. And, and I want to say this, what we talk about this week. Do you know what I forced myself to do this week before I would pray or read my Bible or anything else? I went in and just turned some worship music on, and, and I just spent time worshiping Christ. And guys, I want to say, you may think, man, that's, that's crazy. But I think that's what it is to love Jesus. It's to say, God, you're worthy. Christ, you're worthy. And I love you, and I want to spend time with you. Don't get into all the toil and labor without doing that first. Come to me. Spend time with me. Abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, here's what I want to do. Brad and Vicki are going to come. And that last song, we picked this song for a reason. I want you to sing it with, with new vision in your mind of what this song actually means. That it's all about Jesus. And I want to tell you, some of you here may have been neglecting your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a time to remember that and to repent and return. Uh, you can sit here in your seat. You can stand or you can come up right here and pray. But we're going to sing through the song again. So would you join us in this song about returning to Jesus Christ and making it all about him? Thank you.
that you be seated for just a moment. Uh, if you have questions, prayer requests, anything, we're going to be here after the service. Come grab one of us. We'll pray with you. If you don't know what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have materials that we give out to the church. But I want to tell you, church family, as we move forward as a church, the object of our worship, the priority of our life has to be Jesus Christ and our love for him. Never forget that. Our love for Jesus Christ. So would you bow your heads and we're going to be dismissed and then you'll be able to hang around, visit, ask questions. Father, we're thankful for this day. Wow, God, you're good. Constantly reminding us of what our priorities to be and that Jesus tells us how to get back. Remembering, remembering the relationship repenting, changing our mind and returning back to what we had before. And God, I pray that for those who are returning back, that it's better than it ever was. Lord, that it's renewed and refreshed. And that they'll have a new zeal for you and a new love for you. And God, you're so gracious. You give us warnings in the scriptures and you help us correct it. So Father, I pray for this church family. I pray for this church body that we would keep that as a priority in our own life and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about our church, please visit cashinfbc.org.